This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scriptures send all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Pastor Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, and our special guest today is the Reverend Adam Kuntz of the lovely Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. How's it going, Adam? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for having me on. And we're here today to talk about a Lutheran father that has been a little bit forgotten, but it's a very valuable resource, Mr. George Henry Gerberding. Gerberding is a pastor in which states? Um, He starts out in Pennsylvania, which is his native state. He continues on to Ohio and then west to Illinois and then eventually to what was called generically at the time the Northwest, but would be both Dakotas and uh, parts of Minnesota as well. And then he ends up as a seminary professor right outside Chicago. So um, he spans pretty much the two big centers of Lutheranism in America between his native state, Pennsylvania, and then the burgeoning um, Lutheran populations in the Midwest uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Yes, Gerberding is ordained in 1876. And that's a significant time in American history. There's a lot of westward expansion going on. And American Christianity has now been transformed by the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening. Would you agree? Totally. And it's really interesting that Gerberding, who's born in 1847, grows up as a Lutheran, but he grows up attending things like Presbyterian and Methodist Sunday school, such that you know, when he talks about revival, he talks about it from personal acquaintance because it's, so to speak, normal um, in his experience for revivalism to be the main method by which people profess themselves Christians. And he's at pains later in his career to distinguish Lutherans from other Christians um, in their not being interested in revivalism. But the fact that he has to prove that at all tells you a lot about his environment. Right. So the hallmarks of the Second Great Awakening are going to be these large revivals, emotional experiences. The aim of the of the services are to are for people to achieve a religious conviction and then come to a decision or some or come to some sort of repentance or turning. It is highlighted um, very much so by experientialism and by very charismatic preaching, and really in many ways very earnest preaching in its own way. I mean, there are negative examples like men like Finney, but it's a from the perspective of the congregation, a very sincere form of preaching, a or what appears to be a sincere form of, of preaching and pleading on the behalf of, of the preacher. Uh, do you think there's any significance there as far as how Gerberding is going to approach certain things about uh, the ministry? He is very strong and very strongly opinionated about personal qualifications, which is something we'll get into later. And I think that that's not at all a coincidence because he sees, uh, especially the work that is put in by people like Methodist circuit riders as they travel around from town to town to town to, you know, new homestead out on the frontier as America moves west. Well, yeah, let's let's uh, let's take a minute here and talk about the circuit riders and what their work would have looked like very briefly. It's we have sort of a romanticized notion of going from town to town and drawing big crowds, but it's really not always the case. The circuit rider has a very difficult job to do, particularly in mid-late 1800s America. It's not easy to travel. There is hostility to religion, specifically in the West. 
And it wasn't a glamorous job like, uh, you know, we romanticize it sometimes in the history books. And yet, and yet there's a sincerity to what they do. There is. And he, uh, he definitely understands that conveying emotion, especially in your preaching, is a good thing. He does not see emotion as something to be shied away from, but something simply to be employed in the service of the gospel. Um, which is a note that is, you know, not usually struck uh, by Lutherans. Certainly not when they write about pastoral theology. So, Gerberding's contribution, I think, is is really an interesting one because he grows up in a thoroughly American religious environment, which is a little different from folks in, you know, let's say the Missouri Synod or the Wisconsin Synod, where they are usually like CFW Walther immigrants, and so grow up in just a very different linguistic and religious context. Certainly. Um, it's fair to say that Gerberding is thoroughly American. It is. And, and he's very self-conscious about it, too. His father was a German immigrant, and his mother was the daughter of immigrants to Pennsylvania from Switzerland. But Gerberding identifies as nothing else than American. He grows up in Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania, so that's that's way outside the Pennsylvania Dutch cultural region that sometimes people might associate with the Amish or the Mennonites, but contains lots and lots of Lutherans. Because he grows up in Pittsburgh, he grows up in an English-speaking Lutheran church, and he grows up acquainted with lots of people who are not Lutherans. Pittsburgh has a very strong tradition of Presbyterianism, and there's lots of Methodists pretty much anywhere in America. So he grows up in a very different religious environment from somebody either in an immigrant Lutheran community or in a very ethnically homogeneous Lutheran community, such as you would find more in eastern Pennsylvania. So we know he's influenced or at least aware of the broader theological surrounding. What would be his most significant Lutheran influences? His very biggest influence is a man who has perhaps been even more forgotten than Gerberding, and that is Passavant, who is really the father of Lutheranism in Western Pennsylvania. He's a great founder of a variety of institutions and churches and synods. And Gerberding had personal acquaintance with Passavant um, in college. Um, he was a personal mentor to him. Later on, some names that our listeners might be a little more familiar with when Gerberding goes to seminary in Philadelphia, uh, he's going to be taught by Charles Porterfield Croth and by Henry Eister Jacobs. So those are his major theological influences. But because he's a very practical theologian, because he's a, he's a missionary, because he's a preacher above all things, Passavant as a very practical, dedicated man is really his greatest, his by far his greatest influence. Um, and that pertains even to Gerberding's convictions about language. So Gerberding can speak German fluently. His father teaches him German and teaches him to read the Luther Bible. But for Gerberding, German is already sort of a theological language. In his autobiography, which is a fun read as well, in addition to the Lutheran pastor, he talks about doing German services in various places sometimes. But as a matter of course, and especially as a matter of conviction, he's passionately dedicated to the idea of propagating Lutheranism in English, which may not sound all that earth-shaking um, to our listeners at this point, but that's, you know, that's standing on the shoulders of giants, really, because the idea of propagating confessional Lutheranism in English was wildly controversial throughout the 19th century, even into the 20th century in many synods. And his idea is that if the Lutheran church is going to succeed in America, it has to be entirely 
authentically without faking it or having to think about it American. Which would entail English. Obviously, yeah, right. I mean, that, that's right. That's a place to start. But I mean, there's even even things like his, you know, his attitudes about things um, about political issues that he brings up in his autobiography, and to some extent, as we're going to talk about in the pastor's personal conduct, are very much very different from what you might find within the synodical conference among you know immigrant um, German Midwestern Lutherans. So, if you're listening and you're you know you're not you know, you're not from Pennsylvania or um, you're, you're in a congregation or a church body, which is a legacy of 19th century German immigration. What's interesting about Gerberding is that the Eastern Lutherans are going through the same process in Gerberding's time that the Midwestern Lutherans will go through, you know, maybe after World War I. So it's a process of Americanization that everyone goes through and questions about how can we be faithful in a new language, in a new place? What does it mean to be American? Those are all things that Gerberding himself is thinking about his entire life, really from the get-go. And the Lutheran pastor, which we're talking about tonight, contains a lot of those gems of all that all that time thinking and all that time preaching in English and, and trying to spread the Lutheran church in America specifically. Yeah, and um, the Lutheran Church for a long time is seen as something of an immigrant religion. Um, it's very much tied to the cultures of Germany uh, or Scandinavia, correct? Entirely. And Gerberding is very conscious of this and very concerned that the Lutheran Church punches way below its weight in American Christianity because it lives in a ghetto. And you know, when I, I mean, as I say those words, I think about our own church today and the riches that we have and all that we have to offer. And I just think, you know, how is that not still true? I mean, how many people know what a Lutheran is or how a Lutheran is different from a Methodist or a Roman Catholic? And it, are Lutherans, are Lutherans the same thing as Martin Luther King? You know, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you know, you can you can laugh, but like any Google search will tell you if you're looking for Martin Luther, you're probably looking for Martin Luther King Jr. So, so oftentimes Lutheranism is not seen through what it preaches and what it teaches, but rather through the lens of Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon. Or the only time you hear about Lutherans in popular media is um, you're watching Travel Channel and somebody's at a Lutefisk festival somewhere in Minnesota. Again, it's always it's it's just always associated with these cultural peculiarities, where whereas the greater truths of Lutheranism certainly extend above and beyond German culture or Scandinavian culture. Right, and it, I mean it's really sad because it's basically like your religion is just my big fat Greek wedding. You know, it's just <laughs> right. a it's just a collection of ethnic stereotypes. And it's really sad, I mean, when Lutherans do this to themselves, right? When they propagate their own religion as being German or whatever it may be. Um, and this is not saying that there's anything wrong with being German, but it is saying that if you're in America, if you want to be successful in carrying out the Great Commission, you have to speak English, you have to be American in your outlook, you have to understand that you're not operating within a state church situation, that people are free to go to a different church if they want to, because there's no cultural pressure to be Lutherans anymore. All these kind of things are things that Gerberding thinks a lot about. So as mentioned uh, a few times here, we're specifically going to be talking about Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. 
So do you get to give us a quick rundown of uh, the synopsis there? Yeah, it's a book that comes out in 1902, and it's really a collection of his lectures and reflections from training pastors right outside Chicago in Maywood, Illinois, teaching them how to be pastors, teaching them what it means to carry out their office, what kind of men they need to be especially. So it's the fruit of a lifetime of reflection because he has been in the ministry for getting on 30 years when the book comes out, and it goes through several editions in his own lifetime. The copy that I have was printed in the 1920s, and I think it was like the fifth edition. So, I mean, if you wrote a book and it went through five editions before you died, like, that's pretty impressive. And what's kind of sad is that the book has fallen not only out of print, but especially with these characters who do not have a kind of continuing theological legacy um, and institutional legacy these days, they really kind of fall off the face of the earth because, you know, CFW Walther has an entire synod that he founded and he's like the George Washington of the Missouri Synod and the Missouri Synod still exists and there are statues of CFW Walther in Missouri Synod institutions, you know, so that's like he gets taken care of he gets nice volumes printed by a publishing house he helped to found. Gerberding and a lot of especially Eastern Lutherans do not have that because their successor church body is the ELCA, which is committed to completely different theological ideas and is not institutionally you know, continuous with anything that Gerberding was part of. So it's kind of sad, but I'm, what we want to talk about tonight is really the contribution that somebody like this can offer to those people who are still around of whatever synod who want to be faithful biblical Christians, which is to be confessional Lutherans. One of the advantages to um, reading Gerberding in uh, the current year uh, is that you can go on Google and look a lot of these things up because it's public domain. So in one sense, he's actually more accessible than he's ever been. Uh, the army being he's 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 less recognizable than <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but so it's easily it's easily found. And we can probably link to some of that um, on the website or, you know, contact us. We'll be sure to point you in the right direction if you want to look at this. It's certainly a valuable read for pastors who are currently in the parish and certainly for the seminarian or the would-be seminarian who um, is discerning going uh, into the pastoral ministry. It would behoove him to read this work. You know, there's not much objectionable in it. It's 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 really the fruit of a life dedicated uh, to Christ's church and to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the time, even before his ordination, he's doing amounts of preaching and catechetical work and visitation um, throughout college and seminary that would, you know, overwhelm many ordained ministers these days. So <laughs> um, ordination is kind of a capstone thing for him. And then he's set loose to be, you know, on his own. But uh, the guy had an incredible work ethic. And I, I think you see that in you know, the requirements that he has for pastoral ministry. Well, that's one of the great things about reading about the men who came before us, the men whom God has raised up. It really shows us how soft we really are. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, he really, I mean, he really does put you to shame because, you know, he, he, he's constantly visiting. Um, he's constantly visiting. And a lot of this, uh, and maybe we can link this in the show notes, I'm getting from his autobiography, which is, comes a little, you know, obviously a little bit later, but he describes it, you know, he's, he's visiting this person and then in the afternoon he's with this person and then he goes home for dinner and then somebody's dying and he's with her for six hours. I mean, he's, he's just kind of a workhorse and you often wonder like, 
you know, where did his family fit into this at all? But, you know, <laughs> but he's that. When did he have time to blog? And yeah, blog? well, he definitely, I mean, and he probably didn't have a big social media presence. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, uh, he definitely worked constantly. Um, he was extremely assiduous in, in proclaiming the gospel. Adam, you mentioned uh, the Lutheran pastor as the work that we're going to be talking about the most, but uh, what other works did uh, Gerberding write? His big book in his own lifetime is The Way of Salvation in the Lutheran Church, which is a exposition of really sort of fundamental doctrines of the Lutheran Church. It's something like you know, a pastor might explain in a series of lectures on the small catechism. What's most interesting about that, and I think all of this is public domain, is that in The Way of Salvation, he talks at length about why the Lutheran Church does not pursue revivalism and how, because of the reality of the means of grace, of the preaching of the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, because of what those are, we do not need to rush people into decisions and we don't need to tally up salvations because the Lutheran church is, is building disciples who can be disciples their whole lives. So there's some really profound reflections, I think, on why we are and how we are distinctive in American Christianity in the way of salvation. Um, he's got a book called The Lutheran Catechist, which is about really running Sunday schools and reminiscent reflections of a youthful octogenarian is the autobiography, and they just don't have titles like that anymore. It's it's fantastic. So he he's a he's a fun writer. You never it's it, you don't you don't really find dull moments in Gerberding, and you can find it all as Willie was saying, free online. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start digging into the Lutheran pastor and working through it and mining for gems. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and our guest Adam Kuntz talking about Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. Adam, what's the first thing we encounter in The Lutheran Pastor, the first major theme? His major concern, which occupies a really disproportionate amount of the front end of the book, is the call. Usually when Lutherans talk about that, in fact, almost exclusively when they talk about that today, they mean what he calls the outer call, which we'll talk about shortly. But his big concern is what is described as the inner call, which has precedent in the Lutheran tradition, but simply is not greatly discussed at this point. And that, you know, that goes back to something you said, when you read really much older things than, you know, living memory, you're getting access to ideas that have sort of fallen out of fashion. And his stress on the inner call is one of those things because he exerts himself mightily uh, in in uh, high-flown rhetoric, uh, talking about why <laughs> the inner call is so important. Well, before we dig into the content of the book, it's important for us to talk about the inner call uh, today because 
it's very common for someone who wants to be a pastor to just say, I've got this feeling within me. I've got this desire that I feel. So I'm just going to open up my own church. I'm going to start doing my my own thing. And that's really how the broader uh, community is going to see that. In the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, you're absolutely right. We, we talk about the call mostly in external terms. The call that comes from the church to the to the pastor, the would-be pastor. However, I would say for the broader community, specifically evangelicals and, and that sort of thing, uh, the inner call has become synonymous with feeling or emotion or intuition. That's totally correct. And I think it's really interesting to think about Gerberding in that context because that's really his context too, where so often in American Christianity, emotion is really the determinant of spirituality, of vocation, of really anything that a person does in relationship to God. When Gerberding is talking about the inner call, he is not really talking about a feeling that you have. We can talk about the qualifications that he offers, but he's most certainly not saying, you know, I really felt that God was putting it on my heart. And so I just knew I had to be a pastor. That's, that's really neither that's really neither necessary nor sufficient just to say that you feel that you want to be a pastor. Right. I mean, it, it becomes completely subjective. And nearly every would-be pastor, and certainly I mean, even every false teacher in one way or another, has assumed that they had an inner call. There has to be some sort of check there. And God has certainly established that check in the outer call, which we'll, we'll get to. But let's talk about a proper understanding of an inner call. What does that look like? What does it really mean? Yeah, he has it divided up really into two categories of what he calls endowments, meaning these are divine gifts. These are things that you are given as a man, which means that not everybody can be a pastor. Uh, I just said man, I guess we should specify. Gerberding <laughs> obviously only considers men for the pastoral office. Yeah, we're still a, still a few decades away. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're actually, you know, we're, we're I mean, when, when the first edition comes out, I guess we're still... 70 years away from ordaining women in American Lutheranism. So right, it's, right. That's, that's nowhere on the radar. But even within that, I think it's important to say that somebody's, you know, simply having a desire to be a pastor, he may be held back from that by not having these endowments. So um, he's got natural endowments, and then he's got spiritual endowments. Let me Let me do the natural ones first and start out with stuff that I think might be obvious, but maybe it's not anymore. His first one, uh, he starts out with a story about a, a farmer who has five sons. And the first four sons are big strapping farm boys. They're healthy, they're hardy, they're muscular. So they're all going to go on to be farmers or, you know, maybe a blacksmith or a, a wagon maker, right, in 19th century America. And then the fifth son's kind of like scrawny and, and, and weak, and he gets sick a lot, and he has weak eyes. And they said, well, you're not fit to be a farmer, so you can be a preacher. You know, so Gerberding insists that the pastor, rather than being a physical weakling, someone who's physically awkward, scrawny, should have a sound and healthy body because um, he needs it to endure the strains of the office. Now, that doesn't make sense if you think, oh, well, the pastor, he sits in his office and he's on his computer and then he does services sometimes. But if you're thinking about Gerberding's schedule, if you're visiting, if you're out, if you're sometimes keeping odd hours in order to be with people at crucial times in their life, you do have to be with a, you do have to be able to withstand 
physical stresses on your body. So for him, a sound body is actually the very first qualification a pastor should have. Right. And that's something that has become a little bit politically incorrect. Oh, totally. I mean, he's, he's totally ableist. No question. <laughs> right. he's <a> total ableist. <laughs> yeah. and, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's something that's so obvious. I mean, it's right there in front of us, and, and we've completely forgotten that. And even I mean, in his day, obviously, it's much more strenuous. You know, going from town to town, horseback maybe. You know, travel's not easy. Walking, Food, yeah. yeah. Food, water's more difficult than it used to be. But even today, I mean, the basic principle here still stands. The person needs to be able to physically do the work. Yeah, and I, th- I, I, th- I think to think about the pastoral office, and I know that you've said this um, in other places before, if you think about the pastoral office as more like a job, than some sort it's blue collar it's it's not a it, we think of it as a white collar i mean no pun intended but it's really the pastor should get his hands dirty the pastor should be down with his people and it really is more of a workman type situation yeah i mean i don't know if that's actually a plug that you're making for like awful like blue clericals or whatever but <laughs> no i mean don't wear the pattern blue yeah. clerical guys let's retire that okay men of a certain generation i, I, let's only, get rid of well, it, I okay? only wear the purple one and you only wear the um, denim one at the rodeo yeah i wear the denim one at the rodeo which we have a lot of in pennsylvania so um yeah no um the sound the sound body is is requisite and and also along with that he what he describes as a ready mind so it's really interesting he he thinks about the pastoral office as more like we think about like elite forces in a military right like this is so important we shouldn't just take anyone who wants to be in it we have to have a bunch of qualifications at the front end to make sure that we have the best guys so you have to have a sound body you need to have a ready mind. You need to be quick-witted. You need to be intelligent. Um, you have to be more more Delta Force than Kelly's heroes. Um, or, yeah, or I mean, dirty dozen, whichever. Your yeah. references are getting a little esoteric for me. <laughs> I know what Delta Force is, um, but the, the listeners should know that um, that Pastor Grills has a much more encyclopedic knowledge of pop culture than I do. So um, they didn't have me on to talk about my knowledge of TV and movies. So <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, that will be that will be a very brief episode in which we will only discuss Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, Adam watched that, Shane, and three episodes of Andy Griffith, and it taught him a lot. Um, yeah, and I've, I've watched I've watched pretty much every John Wayne movie. So there you well, go. that's all you need, and that brings um, us right back to Americanism. Thoroughly American, that's right. So the the third qualification that he's got, I think, is the very best one, and he's actually pretty funny on this topic. He talks about you can develop a sound body. Men can give you a ready mind, but if you don't have common sense, not even God can help you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is if the pastor doesn't have a sense of how people are and tact and what should be said and what most importantly should not be said in any given situation, he really should not be doing his job because his job is to be a fisher of men. So that would be like a fisherman who can't identify different kinds of fish. Right. And it goes beyond mere social graces it's it's truly a naturally endowed common sense i mean you can't be a meathead you know and you i mean you have to have some sense of propriety some sense of tact as you say again all things that should be um completely obvious to us and yet depending on the case obviously not so obvious yeah i mean i think the big distinction is just do we think of the pastoral office as something high and difficult for which you need the absolutely best qualified men, even if they are few in number, 
Or is the pastoral office something that you put somebody into because he's well-meaning and he goes to church every Sunday? Well, and it's important to remember what the scriptures say about those who desire the office. I mean, what is the consequence of taking on this office? It's being judged with stricter judgment. Right. So you don't you don't just want to throw just any old guy, you know, your, your conscript infantryman to continue the military <laughs> metaphor. You don't just throw your Soviet conscript into this, right? You 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 you, use you your, want Audie Murphy. I actually know who that is because it's both <laughs> a movie and a real person. Um, so yes, you want you want Audie Murphy. Um, yes. So he's got he's got a few other qualifications which get a little more. Or maybe we might describe them as virtues or aspects of personality. The biggest one is really moral courage, by which he means that basically when something is right, you won't back down. That's his big concern: is that pastors too often, and it's fascinating to find this, you know, in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, pastors too often back down when they are right because they want to appease people. So. Sure. That he moral courage is a big concern for him. Yeah, perennial problem. How would you, how would you distinguish uh, moral courage from just being belligerent, though? Yeah, sheer right, sheer cussedness or something. Um, <laughs> he, right, he's not he's not talking about uh, being looking, you know, out looking for a fight, right? In the way that you know, Paul says that the that the overseer should not be quarrelsome, right? You're not looking to scrap with people. But the idea is that Gerberding is concerned that the pastor will have carried out his office faithfully, that he will have done what is pleasing to God. But then he'll see that what is pleasing to God is not always pleasing to men. And in seeing that, he'll think more about pleasing men than pleasing God. And so he will actually refrain from doing or stop doing or never get to doing what is actually pleasing to God, even if it's difficult for men to swallow, to accept. Um, to work with. So he's not really talking about like looking for a fight, just running around trying to like prove that you're in charge of everything. But he is looking for somebody who, when he is tasked with something difficult to do, will not back down from doing what is difficult. So we've got the obvious physical qualifications, mental qualifications, spiritual qualifications. We'll put moral courage in that. What else do we have at play here? Yeah, he's got, I mean, he's got two more what you might think of as like personality traits. And it's interesting that these, you know, this has nothing to do with like psychological testing or, you know, taking a quiz on Facebook to see what your personality <laughs> is. These things, these things are obviously assessed by Gerberding personally. I mean, I want to, I want to stress that as we think about like education and preparing pastors and stuff, all of this involves somebody personally knowing you and knowing that, for instance, with the last two natural endowments that he talks about, you can't, you're not actually a self-starter. He uses the term earnest activity because self-starter is probably some kind of sales speak from much later. But he talks about earnest activity and compassion and that someone has to know you well enough to know that, you know, you're a great guy, you're a, you're a smart guy, but basically you're too lazy and you won't do well in a job in which you nobody is supervising you, not on a day-to-day, -day. nobody's looking over your shoulder you're basically an independent contractor and the job either gets done or it doesn't get done. And that's up to you and up to your self-motivation. So somebody has to know you well enough to know whether or not you have that and to know whether or not you have compassion, right? Are you sort of unfeeling, bordering on sociopathic? Or do you understand what it's like to be a human being to struggle, 
right? Think about the description of Jesus, our great high priest, knowing men's faults, um, having compassion upon them, looking at them as sheep without a shepherd, and, you know, his bowels are torn up when he looks at them. Um, That kind of compassion, which is obviously modeled by our Lord. The minister has to have that. If he doesn't have that, why does he want to work with people if he doesn't, if he can't love them in that way? So being, being self-motivated and having compassion are, I think he puts them last under natural endowments simply because they're, they're kind of capstone things. You could be smart. You could be physically able. If you don't have those, though, you really shouldn't be a minister. Yeah, you can be a fine servant of the church, but not necessarily uh, one who occupies the office, the teaching office. Yeah, and yeah, and he's he's not thinking of being a minister as you know the only way to be a Christian, um, but he is thinking of it as a very specific task within the church, which has you know pretty pretty high qualifications. Sure. So natural endowments naturally brings us to spiritual endowments. And these these are twofold, but one I think seems obvious. Maybe maybe again it's not. And I, I wish we didn't have to keep making that qualification. But when you read Gerberding, you do have a real sense that that he was undertaking preparing men to be pastors and being a pastor himself with a greater seriousness than you sometimes find in the present day. So when he talks about spiritual endowments, he says piety should be obvious but cannot be taken for granted. A man may be in the office because he thinks it's going to be an easy career or he likes the adulation of large groups of people looking at him as he talks to them and they have to be silent. Whatever whatever sort of worldly options, worldly benefits the pastoral office may offer, which were definitely more in Gerberding's day than in our own. If the man doesn't have piety, then he's going to be in the office for the wrong reason. So he has to have piety toward God. He has to practice his faith earnestly as a serious Christian and also has to be compelled to be a pastor. He should want to be there for the sake of the task, for the sake of the souls, and not for his own aggrandizement. Now, if I remember in my reading of Gerberding, and it has been a while, isn't it under this category, too, where he talks about, oh, no, I'm, I'm actually jumping ahead, where he talks about piety, including uh, the, the self-denial of, of a minister? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 I do. When he talks about what the man is like in his personal deportment, he's going to talk about self-denial there. Um, but that's definitely part of his piety, is that the, the, the minister is going to look like Christ in his sacrificial nature. Um, he's going to give things up for the sake of the people, for the sake of the gospel. And so, and part of the the self-starter and the natural endowments that you're talking about too, is just that, that you probably will have to do things that will, I guess you could say, make you uncomfortable um, so that the, the, the minister has to set aside his own personal comfort in many cases. It's just something I think that, I don't know, do we do that enough today? Yeah, I, I think I think especially if you're thinking of Z asks the loaded question. Yeah, right. He does. I mean, he <laughs> he he came loaded for bear in his own in his own way. Um, I, I I think that if you think about you know Paul's strategy on the mission field that he talks about in First Corinthians nine when he talks about I became as a Jew to the Jews, a Greek to the Greeks, all of that. I mean, sometimes that's understood as like, well, this that's why we do this musical style in this service and a different musical style in another service. But it's a lot more intensive and, and thoroughgoing and everyday than that, because Paul is basically giving up the right to live 
precisely the kind of life that he would live if he had a different job. And he's forsaking that for the sake of living with and like the people that he wants to and has and has and has persuaded to believe the gospel of Christ. And that is true for any minister of the gospel, whether he's a traveling missionary similar to Paul or similar to Gerberding in the Dakotas, or whether he's in a parish situation, that self-sacrificial nature of the ministry is part of the compulsion of the pastoral task because by definition, you are putting the spiritual welfare of those people either in a defined parish or within some area that you've been tasked with evangelizing. Their welfare is more important than the fact that you would really rather spend five nights a week at home or you would really rather be able to just check out at 4 p.m. or sort of the benefits of life that many other people get to enjoy in Gerberding's day and in our own, you have to forsake those for the sake of the souls that you're tasked uh, with caring for. And I know when um, Gerberding served a, a church in Fargo, North Dakota, the St. Mark's is still there today. Uh, and he was the second minister there. And uh, their history uh, says that uh, they were a really small church when he came. But because of this compulsion, because of this drive uh, that he had, they had a, actually a pretty tremendous growth within his relatively short ministry in Fargo. So that, I think that says something personally about him living out what he's talking about as well. Yeah, I don't doubt that. I mean, I think if a minister becomes the subject of what we exegetes would call oral tradition within a parish's history, you know that he's really made a significant mark. And generally, ministers only make it into oral tradition years and years and years later because they were either stupendously good or stupendously evil. Either way, <laughs> um, you make it into the oral traditions of the parish. So we have um, these two major themes about the intercall, natural endowments, spiritual endowments, and then we go into the compulsion to the task. But this is necessary but not sufficient for a valid call. Yeah, and that means that you can't actually go without these things. So sometimes necessary but not sufficient is something that people say sort of lazily, <laughs> like, well, it doesn't really matter. We can ignore right. this. It, that's what they actually mean. Yeah. But he he really does mean these are necessary. If you don't have these things, your outer call may be real. You may really have been called through the church, but you are you are not thinking of your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of men. And that's going to do great harm to the church. So, right. You're just a higher. That's right. So his issue here is that there are people who are in the church for all the wrong reasons. And you can hear this as a kind of echo of the revivalist question of having a potentially unconverted ministry, an unregenerate ministry, um, ministers who are hirelings and time servers. Now, he has taken that question of the sincerity of the minister, and I think he's applied it in a very faithful and scriptural way by talking first about the inner qualifications, the minister's personal qualifications, and then saying that that must go along with the outer ratifying call from the church. Sure. So let's dig into that then, shall we? What does the outer call look like in most of the churches in Gerberding's day, which is really going to be similar to our day? And then what is a legitimate outer call? So that's that's kind of 
the outline for where we're going to go here. So yeah, Gerberding Gerberding does not talk a whole lot about what you were mentioning earlier about say like what we would now call American evangelicals with the call being almost exclusively an inner call. He really just talks about two two systems which are very different from his own understanding of the of the outer call and those systems are what he calls hierarchy or transference theory and just to keep organizing it along his lines he says that the problem with a misunderstanding of the outer call is that the, they they always end up mixing the office of the holy ministry with the royal priesthood which pertains to all believers in Christ and then when that is mixed with the office of the ministry, when priesthood and ministry are confused, that's when you have problems. So he says, on the one hand, hierarchical churches like the Roman Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church conflate the priesthood with the ministry by saying that only ministers are priests. Only those people are truly offering sacrifices to God. Um, He sees that as illegitimate simply because the doctrine of apostolic succession, the laying on of hands from the apostles down to the present day through bishops. He just says there's no ground for certainty in that. It's probably just a historical figment. Um, It has some sort of passing romantic um, interest. It seems kind of nice to think of, but there's no way you can prove it. And it doesn't matter if you don't have doctrinal apostolicity. So the point here is that it it doesn't really matter whether or not the minister has some sort of chain of ordination stretching all the way back to Jesus calling the 12. The issue is that the minister is proclaiming the very same things that Jesus proclaimed and sent the 12 to proclaim. So doctrinal succession is much more important than what's called apostolic. Right. And we would we'd hardly agree with that sentiment. Yeah, n- no question. And then transference theory is the issue of the royal priesthood actually possessing the office of the ministry and then just transferring the responsibility for exercising that office to some one man as a matter of convenience. And what's interesting here, and probably most difficult for some of our listeners to swallow, is the idea that Gerberding says very clearly, this is what Martin Luther believed. This is what CFW Walther teaches. It's also what Matthias Loy of the Ohio Synod teaches. And it's wrong. And for Gerberding, it's wrong because the ministry and the priesthood are not the same thing. And when the ministry becomes a function of the priesthood calling them, as in, you know, let's say the local congregation in the Missouri Synod, um, that turns the minister inevitably into the hireling of the congregation, which is also for Gerberding not scriptural. And he has sort of a long, a paragraph long diatribe where he just asks rhetorically in a variety of ways, where is it found in the Bible that a congregation calls one man and gives him powers that it could otherwise do on its own, but just for convenience's sake, they give to that one man. So that's, I mean, he's, he's, he's very polemical on this point, but it's also because it's, it remains to this day a, a hotly debated topic within American Lutheranism. Oh, certainly. Very much so. So his, his doctrine of the ministry can be summed up in the idea that ordination really affects the placing of a man into the office of the holy ministry. It's sort of the capstone for the whole process of discerning the inner call with the help of the church and then receiving an outer call from the church. 
and then you are ordained and you're never reordained because ordination actually does something. And um, ordination places you in that office. And then within that office, you can have different assignments. So Gerberding doesn't really have any ambiguity about whether or not, for instance, seminary professors or missionaries or what we would call synod presidents or district presidents, whether or not they are really ministers. He doesn't have a question like that because he basically sees ordination as putting you into the office of the ministry. And then from there, you serve the royal priesthood with the gospel in any variety of you know situations, whether it's as a missionary or a parish pastor or a professor. Very good. We're going to step away for a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the pastor is a man and get some more good stuff from Gerberding. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grill, Zelman Heidi, Adam Kuntz here talking about Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. We've talked about the inner call, the outer call, a right understanding of both. And now we come uh, to a very interesting topic, the pastor as a man, and what that means for our churches and what that means biblically, according to Gerberding. Adam? He's got a section on this simply because he's under the firm conviction that the problem with the Lutheran Church in America, what's holding it back, what causes it not to spread and not to be known, is that we lack the right men to speak for it and to proclaim the gospel as confessional Lutherans. So he's very concerned that in addition to the natural and spiritual endowments and the outer call that we already talked about, that the pastor should also be a certain kind of person. And that if he's not, if he doesn't conduct himself in certain ways, um, it's not that he's not a pastor, that he has no certainty that he's called to be a pastor, but it's that he's not really conducting his office in the most absolutely beneficial way as an American. And this is what I love about reading about different pastoral theologies from different times and places, is that sections that concern the things that we're going to talk about in a second are going to vary widely simply because it's one thing to minister to Jews and it's another thing to minister to Greeks. It's one thing to minister to German immigrants. It's another thing to minister to native-born Americans. And so Gerber, this is really where Gerberding's being thoroughly American is going to come out, I think especially in some of his social attitudes that we'll get into. When we don't have the right men, you know, obviously it leads to detrimental effects upon the church in many and various ways. So how do we find the right men? What do we look for in a man who would desire the pastoral office? We're looking for a guy who is manly, uh, a word that Gerberding uses uh, for several paragraphs. And what he means by that is that he is forthright. He knows his own mind. He speaks his own mind, again, as we were saying before, not in an aggressive or an abrasive way necessarily, um, but he knows where he stands and what he stands for. That's what Gerberding means by, by manliness, the ability to gird up your loins and, you know, according to the, the story from the English Reformation, to acquit yourself like a man, um, to play the man. 
that that's that's his first thing and then along with that the pastor is uh, is obviously honest and humble and by humility he doesn't simply mean social behavior right that is going to vary between cultures in america i think just between the three cultures the three places that each of us is from <laughs> um humility is going to look a little different <laughs> i remember the first time that i looked at zelwyn directly and then zelwyn stared at my shoes um because that's it's a it's a you know, thing right because it's real. right it, it is it's very real um but zelwyn's very aggressive so he looked at my shoes and not his own so um so that's you know that's just an, out, an outgoing norwegian yeah you're you're extremely outgoing i mean you're basically you're you're bubbly it's um, like a traitor to his uh and so to his people he is um and i guess we'll get into that another time i mean it's getting kind of psychoanalytical at this point but yeah i mean humility is going to look different but i think it simply means that for the pastor you are carrying out your task as a representative of christ and not as a sort of self-aggrandizing you know circuit speaker. It's interesting when you think about what Gerberding is saying and you put it into the context of some of the celebrity pastors of his own day or of our own and how many of those people moved very easily between fundraising and getting very big uh, payments for the speeches they gave, the sermons they gave, their connection to uh, the plutocrats of the Gilded Age was very strong with some of them. That humility... Humility basically means for Gerberding that you are always representing Christ and you're representing the interests of Christ and of his church. You're not doing this for yourself. You're not doing this so that you can be listened to. You're not doing this so that people can fawn over you. I think that that is an attitude that can carry into any kind of you know social or cultural context. Well, and you have uh, humility, I think, as some people understand it, as just being generally... Um, meek, kind of a mild, like very inward looking, introspective, I mean, whatever word you want to use, which would contrast, of course, with his earlier point about a pastor should be a, a earnest activity, the self-starter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's he's got several other, after this, several other more social attitudes. And some of these are going to be a little bit time bound, but I think they're interesting to get into. I don't know if you guys can think of parallels but when he brings up, for instance, the question of temperance, it's obviously a political word in his time. Temperance, and this is this is something where our the the distinguished gentleman from Kentucky is is going to have a different view of this than I do. But temperance temperance is something that is for Gerberding both a political issue and also a matter of personal deportment. So as far as personal deportment goes, he's very clear that using alcohol or tobacco is not in and of itself sinful. So he doesn't sort of totally capitulate to, you know, a Methodist or Baptist understanding of alcohol where it is per se wrong to drink a beer or to have a glass of wine. However, Gerberding believes that if it's at all a cause for stumbling, which in his own time with the culture of saloons, it definitely was. And he has very graphic detail about alcohol ruining various families that he ministered to um, in his first call, which was outside his native city of Pittsburgh. He, I mean, th this, this was a major problem in his time. I mean, Americans drank a lot more per capita than in his day than they do in oh, our it was, own. It was so, an insane amount. It was, it was whiskey the way we would consume beer today. If you could, if you can even imagine that level of drunkenness 
And, right. and uh, right. nevertheless, I'm not going to go full on, you know, uh, carry nation here because I am a patriot. But um, <laughs> no, nevertheless, it, it, well, I think we I think we do forget really the level of abuse that was happening in America at the time. Yeah. That, that we look back yeah. at prohibition now, or the temp- rather the temperance movement, you know, properly speaking, and say, well, they're just a bunch of pietists who didn't, you know, who were racist against Germans and Catholics, so they didn't want them to drink, and you know, they just didn't want anybody to have a good time. No, America really did have an epidemic going on, you know, and we we don't want to. It's probably not in the extremes of the opioid epidemic, but there are certain parallels there, if that can contextualize it for us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's anything like that, and I I think it's important to say that his attitude. I mean, he he believes that national prohibition is actually a good thing. He says that clearly in these later editions that come out once prohibition has been enacted. Um, so that's his political stance. But I think the takeaway for all times and places, you know, whether you think national prohibition was a good idea or not, is that he does not see the minister's exercise of his right to do whatever he wants as actually any proof of the gospel. He's very concerned that the way we behave, ministers of the gospel behave, will be a stumbling block to somebody who struggles with drinking or who's smoking himself to death or whatever it may be, whatever he's struggling with. And so that the minister in his deportment refrain from things that are controversial, things that are stumbling blocks for other people, so that he might by all means win some. I mean, it, it's it's an extension in everyday behavior of that attitude towards others that we talked about earlier uh, as, as far as being a missionary goes. Yeah, and what Gerberding's doing here is he is reading the Bible and applying it to his own life. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's sad that like, that sounds, it sounds like you just gave like the Sunday school answer. You know what I mean? Like it should be so obvious to any Christian that that's what you do. But I mean, it, it's when, when you're in a certain church culture and like certain church cultures are very invested in like, you know, somebody said that this was wrong, but it's not wrong. So I'm going to do more of it than anyone. You know, it's like, that's not actually how St. Paul uh, behaves. Uh, St. Paul does, you know, I mean, he forces Timothy to be circumcised. There are times when, for the sake of the mission, you sacrifice, you give up things, you don't Yeah, when it comes to these abstentions in the Bible, it's not so much about my conscience, it's about the conscience of of neighbor. Yeah, it's it's about the weaker brother, so that the weaker brother can remain within the fold, and you cooperate, and you try to get along, and you try to help, and you do whatever you can certainly without compromising the gospel, but you do it so that you might by all means win some. I mean, that that drive, that central focusing drive on the mission of Christ is something that Gerberding has in spades. And I think any minister that has that, that's going to focus how you behave and what you do much more than, you know, what do I want to do? And there's another aspect to causing, it's not only causing, say, your alcoholic neighbor to stumble or your anti-smoking neighbor to stumble, whatever. It's also causing your neighbor to stumble simply in judging you as a Christian or as a pastor. If you're seen as a glutton and a wine bibber, you know, they're going to judge you rightly or wrongly. You're giving them a cause for stumbling. That's right. Yeah. You 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 look like somebody that doesn't have self-control. So you're saying that you shouldn't <laughs> post yourself uh, smoking and drinking on your yeah. Facebook? Is that what I mean? Yeah. Put a put a nose on it here. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point but on But maybe it. when you're going through that drive through don't get the Baconator. Maybe get the side salad. You know, get the baked potato. 
I mean, and I'm just as guilty of it as anyone is. You know, we all find ourselves falling into that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be temperance in um, food or drink. It can be temp- a lack of temperance in anything, modesty, whatever. Um, it, it manifests itself in uh, in many ways because man is prone to vainglory, and it can really it can it can crop up anywhere. And again, it's for the sake of the neighbor, and it's again, it's not just making them fall into their into their habits, but also giving them an occasion to ridicule the pastor and therefore ridicule what the pastor represents. I think it's also when you think about self-control, people forget that that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a gift that the New Testament specifically designates unbelievers as not having. They lack self-control. So they are enslaved to their passions. Um, But Christians are not and should not be. And if you think about like the example of martyrs in the early church, one of the most convincing things for many was the self-control that they exhibited under the the suffering of martyrdom that they held firm that they did not renounce their faith so you you would think that a pastor in his everyday life could exhibit a modicum of self-control which would be helpful or would impress upon the unbeliever that the one who belongs to Christ uh, actually possesses a degree of self-control that the unbeliever has never been able to obtain, and that 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 is a that's right. a good witness for Christ that you don't just do whatever you want in as in as great quantities as you want to. Would you say that we uh, tend to define as Americans a self-control in purely individual terms, and that's why we get so upset, as it were, when someone tries to encroach upon that? I think it's also because we define self-control in consumer terms. So we do look down upon people for having too much credit card debt or for things like that. Like that's kind of obviously a problem. But if you are spending your own money on something, then then it it somehow can't be wrong because you have exercised financial self-control and now you have that thing and you know from there you just basically go into the, the the ethical reasoning of whatever makes you happy you know so i think that the, it's a, it's a basically self-centered way of thinking about how we go through life and gerberding is thinking about how we go through life in terms of how does this benefit the spirit of my brother who is with me or the unbeliever who is watching me how does this give a witness for christ and that's a fundamentally outward directed ethic rather than you know what makes sure. me happy all right. Well, moving on before we, you know, fan a flame war up here uh, with our talk of piety and temperance, <laughs> let's talk about how the pastor um, conducts himself uh, within the church service. Yeah, he's going to always wear a gown for a Gerberding. Uh, that really does mean a black gown. He's got a quote from a Presbyterian, which he heartily approves of the, in the quote that just because you're wearing a gown doesn't mean that horror of horrors, you will bring in the alb and the stole and the chasuble, which is what I wear at basically, <laughs> right. basically every service. So I am the Romanizer that Gerberding said would never appear in the Lutheran church. Well, he couldn't see the 50s and 60s coming. So. That's right. He could not see the 50s and 60s. And, and he's really fighting the battle within the general synod in which he grows up and the general council in which he ministers um, almost throughout the rest of his life until the formation of the United Lutheran Church. He's really fighting the battle to have people not wearing suits, but wearing a gown over their suit and tie so that the pastoral office has some sort of uniformity, which, as we'll talk about, 
um, next time also goes into the idea that the pastor should conduct a liturgical service rather than a self-directed, self-invented service. Similarly, he doesn't just present as himself. He presents as a minister of Christ marked off by the gown that he wears. So the next, the most obvious thing then is uh, the pastor in the fishbowl, right? Uh, The pastor's home and family. Yeah, and he doesn't try to avoid this or psychologize the idea that everyone <laughs> is watching. Compartmentalize, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he doesn't want to say, like, this is just my job. It doesn't matter what my wife and kids are like or how they behave. He just says, your home and your family will be examples, so they should be good examples. And maybe that sounds harsh, or maybe that sounds psychologically unperceptive to modern people who are familiar with problematizing things. But I think it's scriptural. I mean, scripturally, St. Paul commands people to imitate him. Um, He accepts that responsibility to be an exemplar, to be a father, and he carries that out for his spiritual children, his children through the gospel um, in Corinth. Um, And so Gerberding just accepts that and works with it. He doesn't go into a lot of detail about home and family. He doesn't really talk a whole lot about the pastor's wife. That's unsurprising if you read his autobiography because he doesn't talk a lot about his family there either. Um, he talks a lot about his work and not as much about his family. And, and maybe that's maybe that's a critique people will want to offer. I'm, I'm less prone to critique prior generations simply because I don't think it's fruitful and it's kind of an endless thing you could do because they are different from you. But I think we can agree that home and family should be exemplars for the congregation. Certainly. And then what about the uh, pastor's office, the pastor's study? The pastor's study is going to be well-stocked, but it's primarily well-stocked for the study of the Bible. He is very concerned that the pastor is a good soldier and therefore needs to focus on soldiering and not on other things, not on reading literature or reading the newspaper all morning, right? Which I guess you could translate into like social media in our day, right? You're not just like wasting your time. You're primarily studying the Bible. You're studying it in the original languages. And you're going to be in the study in the morning because in the afternoon, you're going to go abroad. That's his term for, you know, going out, visiting people, meeting new people, visiting the sick, uh, visiting new members, visiting all kinds of people. So he kind of divides the day into two. In the morning, you're going to be in the study. You're preparing so that you're well stocked. You have plenty of things to say, plenty to think of. You're reading the Bible regularly. That's your main kind of food as a pastor, as for any Christian, but especially for a pastor. And then in the afternoon, you're going to go out. You're going to see people. He's got the saying, which is a true saying. I don't know any pastor that has ever done this uh, for whom it was not true that a a homegoing pastor makes a church-going people. If you visit them, they will visit the church regularly. They will be there if you are in their homes with them. And um, that's that's really wh- what he brings home. He believes very sincerely that the pastoral ministry is a matter of le- knowing what to say, knowing the Bible very well, and then saying it clearly and as broadly as possible to as many people as you can every day. Yeah, the pastoral life is disciplined and focused, you know, organized around the word, and then a focus on the task of caring for the sheep that God has entrusted to you. Yeah, it's not that complicated, but it is... It's simple in focus, but um, it's deep and it's rich, um, and you're drawing that fullness, all the things that you can say and give as a minister out of the Bible, which you're studying assiduously and constantly. Right. 
Well, that's going to be all for this episode, folks. We certainly have a lot more gerberting to go through, which we will do in future episodes. This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. If you like what you're hearing and want to know more, check out wordfitlyspoken.org. That's wordfitlyspoken.org. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or follow us on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and our guest Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. <laughs>